Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. Don't Look Up, which premiered on Netflix last week, is now the third most streamed movie of all time for Netflix. Did you happen to see Don't Look Up? I have not caught that one yet. It's really gained a lot of traction. It was kind of crazy. I went into my work and I mentioned to one of my coworkers who doesn't watch movies very often. I was like, I think you would really like this movie. It's up your alley. And she's like, you're the 10th person in here to tell me that today. (laughs) And every customer that came in just, it seemed like was talking about that movie. So I believe it. Like these numbers are mercurial for Netflix. You kind of have to take them at their word because they have their own stats and nobody can really check to see if it's real or not. You know, so people are always accusing them of faking their numbers a lot of the time. It's interesting whenever you see any numbers from Netflix, it's usually because it's something that's going absolutely crazy. Yep. Like uh, season four of Cobra Kai. Right, which I haven't delved into yet. Have you? Oh, I'm I'm almost through the entire series. It's like what, eight episodes? Ten something episodes. Like that. Ten episodes. Okay, maybe we can talk about it next week. I'll try and squeeze in as many as I can. I want you to see if you can guess the ten most streamed movies of all time for Netflix. So we know Don't Look Up as number three. Can you name any of the other ones on the list? Right. Nope, not on the list. I'm pretty sure all of these have been since the pandemic, with the exception of one. One was like definitely before the pandemic. Uh, And we talked about it on Box Office Battle, and it's four hours long. (laughs) Oh, uh, God, what is it? I know what movie you're talking about. Uh, I know, because you saw it. It's got Robbie D. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the name. Bobby. I call him Bobby because I know, you know, you know, me and Bobby. Marty directed. Irishman. There you go. Okay, that's one. Can you guess any of the other ones? What's that Ryan Reynolds one? Uh, that would be number one. Fuck. What, I, terrible. Red Notice. Oh, that's uh, not the Ryan Reynolds one I was thinking of. Oh, I don't know what other ones he's in, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, that's the one with, with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and uh, Gal Gadot. Like I, I Gal Gadot. It. Yeah, Gadot. Can you name number two? Very memed, very made fun of. A star from the 90s was spearheading this. Yeah, John Malkovich in a teeny tiny part. A lot of jokes about Daredevil, like being canceled and, and this movie taking off and how he would have been perfect for this world. Nope. Bird Box? You don't remember uh, the whole Bird Box? Did you watch Bird Box? I did see Bird Box. It was fucking terrible, but it was worth watching it just so I could clown on it with other people. <laughs> like, honestly, it's a real dumb movie. These ones I just don't think you're going to get. Maybe You might get one of the other ones, but it doesn't look like you're in a place to remember. So Kissing Booth is number five. No, wouldn't have got that one. No. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Kissing Booth 2. Was number five, which is weird to me because I'm pretty sure The Kissing Booth is also on Netflix. And if that's their most streamed movie, that means that either A, people skip the first movie or B, people just like the sequel way better. Or it could be produced under a different company and then they bought it up. 
Hundred percent. The first kissing booth was on Netflix. Oh, okay. Yeah, I. It was one of those things that I heard about and never talked about on a podcast because I don't give a shit. But like, it's definitely a Netflix thing. Um, number six was Six Underground. I that's think, the one I was thinking. I think that of. might be the Michael Bay one, right? Yeah, that's the Ryan Reynolds movie. movie I was okay, thinking. I didn't know Ryan Reynolds was in it. Uh, number seven was Spencer Confidential. Nope, never heard of it. Oh, so that was. That was definitely came out during COVID, and uh, it was Mark Wahlberg, like Mark fucking Wal- Mark and Mark. Yeah, they they were doing Spencer for hire, but they made a movie of it, <laughs> <laughs> and somehow that was the sixth most streamed. Excuse me, seventh most streamed thing. Number eight was Enola Holmes, which like I'm never going to watch. I think it's like a tween take on Sherlock Holmes. I believe. Yeah, I have no it's idea. shown up on my screen over and over again, and I'm like, stop showing me this. I don't care. Number nine is Army of the Dead. I know you saw that one. Yeah. And then number ten is The Old Guard, which I meant to watch for a while and just never gotten around to. So there you go. That's your Netflix all-time top ten streamed movies. Uh, Morbius was delayed again. Yep. It's gone from January to April, which means it's now holds the records for the most delays in a movie. Number one was the new mutants, which they delayed for over two years. I want to say something like that. Yeah. But they had pushed it back four times. This one is on its fifth pushback. I'm not going to say it's more understandable because Sony seems to think it's going to be a giant hit. They're pushing it back because they're worried COVID's going to hurt it. So they're doing like the bond thing where you keep pushing it back, waiting for a window when you can make a boatload of money. But like, is it going to make a boatload of money? Like, I kind of wonder. I think a lot of people are just going to assume this is tied with the MCU and that's what they're banking on, you know? Yeah, I think they are people trying to get, get that uh, superhero money. They'll take any money they can get, to be honest, for the dirtbag verse, as, uh, <laughs> as Carl puts it. I guess I'm still going to watch it if it's in April. I guess. We'll see which variant is going around at that point. See if it's one that'll melt my insides or not. Peacemaker dropped a trailer. So what was your impressions of that trailer? It was a red band trailer, I should note. So they made sure to use the term fuck at least four times in it. It's uh, looking exactly what I'd want out of the Peacemaker show, which is like completely like over-the-top violence very sexualized yeah he seems to be very clueless as to what's going on at all times right (laughs) like he reminds me of ash a bit yeah just a dumb dummy who's like has unplaced self-confidence but can kick ass when he needs to but also just a dummy probably an awful person i liked when he's talking to the classroom and one of the kids asked him if he's ever seen wonder woman and he said he was in a room with her one time and she's giving f me eyes <laughs> teachers he like f me yeah i f me that's what it was and the teacher kind of is like hey and he's like what i said f <laughs> <laughs> I love that that one guy gets pissed off because Eagly is going up his asshole, basically. (laughs) (laughs) It looks entertaining. It looks real dumb and real fun. Yeah. That's all I can ask for. It's kind of interesting that they got that actress from Orange is the New Black in it, too. She seems to be a big part of it based off all the trailers. Like she's Oh, the one that plays Tasty? Yeah. Yep. I don't know her name, but yes. Yeah, I should know the name, but I don't. She's good, too. Yeah. She can do the dramatic stuff, and she can be funny. So she seems like she would be a natural for a show like this. Like, the kind of person who can probably play, like, a straight man if you need it, you know? Yeah. She did a couple episodes of uh, Adam Ruins Every everything and so i've seen her in a couple things and she's really good let's do the mephisto report really quick 
Mephisto Watch. So I know a lot of people are trying to ferret out scrolls from the MCU from Secret Wars, but I think we should be actually figuring out who Mephisto is. So out of everybody on Phase 4, who's the most likely to be Mephisto? Or do we think it's in an upcoming show? Or is Mephisto multiple people? Or maybe Mephisto's in all of our hearts all of the time. So Mephisto is really uh, Quicksilver. Which Quicksilver? So it The w- dead one or Ralph Boner? It's Ralph Boner. <laughs> you think Ralph Boner is Mephisto? Yeah. Explain yourself. So he comes back, air quotes, as Maximov's brother, but everybody knows he's not Maximov's brother because he's the other Quicksilver. Interesting. Maybe that's Mephisto and not Max's brother, right? Yeah. No, I don't think so. So I actually have the answer to this. I've been thinking about this. Okay. What was the most divisive thing that happened in a Marvel movie that people complained about to the end of the earth? Mm, No, I don't know. The thing I heard people complain about the most was that Aquafina didn't know how to shoot a bow and arrow. And then in an afternoon gets the killing strike on a dragon with the arrow, right? It's because she was Mephisto the whole time, dude. It all makes sense. She's right there next to Shang-Chi. She's like, do this. You should like talk with your family. That's important. She's following him. He needs to go to sleep. She's like encouraging him to do karaoke, right? She's just there trying to push him onto the edge, get him into the like dangerous territory get him in the red a little bit this is how mephisto works he just gives a slight push just a little nudge in the direction he wants but aquafina is mephisto that's why aquafina could shoot those arrows because it was mephisto shooting those arrows but would mephisto really want to take the kill shot on the evil dragon yeah because mephisto has mephisto's own plans and the evil dragon was butting up against that but if he controls the dragon and the world that's not how mephisto works mephisto goes for souls it's not about controlling the world if all of the souls are baked what souls are there to capture but a soul is eternal so it it doesn't matter if it's baked but you want more souls it's it's a numbers game brandon you got to keep your numbers up (laughs) it's never enough you think jeff bezos is like i got enough money i can stop working on all this money no dude it's about getting more money get the most money keep getting money get the all-time record keep it stay at the top of those charts that's what mephisto's for he wants the all-time souls well you could just have a dragon and just start harvesting man no because you have to tempt to get souls if you just breathe fire on them then whatever happens to him in the Marvel Universe happens, but they don't go to Mephisto. They're just dead. Like, Mephisto could kill people, and it would be super easy. That's not what Mephisto does. Mephisto mm-hmm. plays a long game to get people trapped. He ruined Peter Parker's marriage. Why? Because there's a soul in it for him, I guess. That that one's weird, actually, now that I think about <laughs> it. <laughs> you got Norman Osborn. That's a thing they do in the comics now. That one's weird. I don't like that storyline. I don't know. <laughs> they got some weird storylines in Spider-Man from time to time. Mephisto Watch. So we've got some stuff hitting the public domain, and I think far and away the biggest news of that is Winnie the Pooh is now going to be in public domain. So you cannot use Tigger, but you can use the people that were in the original Winnie the Pooh story. So you can use Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin, I'd imagine Rabbit, maybe Eeyore, probably Piglet, right? Rue, maybe? Yeah. We need to like come up with our own Winnie the Pooh movie so that we can outdo Disney. 
Because Disney's Winnie the Pooh game has been pretty weak in the last, I'm going to say, 15 years, right? Did you see the Christopher Robin? I did, and it was good, but nobody else saw it. Did you see it? No. So you don't know it's about a guy who comes back from war, and he's fucking shell-shocked and trying to deal with, like, going back to his normal life, and then Winnie the Pooh is suddenly there, and he thinks he's cracking up? That's the fucking plot of Winnie the Pooh. I swear to God, (laughs) dude. And Haley Atwell plays, I want to say, fiancé? And uh, Ewan McGregor is Christopher Robin. This is actually the plot. I'm not making this up. Like, I only watched it because it was up for an Oscar. (laughs) For, like, sound editing or special effects or something. I don't know. It was something like that. But Maybe animated? No, because it's, like, mostly live action. But it's a weird movie, dude. So that's what I'm trying to say is, like, they were trying to squeeze out one more Pooh thing. Not good enough. So we need to come up with our own Winnie the Pooh plot here. Let's think. Who's our main character? It's got to be Winnie the Pooh, right? Like, he's the main draw. Who's the main draw, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what does Pooh want in the world? Honey. Yeah, it's always honey. So what's the obstacle to him getting honey? It's got to be something in the public domain. We got to be careful. It can't be Boba Fett for this. It's got to be like bees or something. Think bees? Maybe bees are stopping Winnie the Pooh? No, it's murder hornets. Murder hornets. I like this. They're killing all the bees who make the honey. Yeah. Yeah, murder hornets are killing the bees. So is this like an allegory for the environment? Yeah. So what's Winnie the Pooh going to do? We need to think about his character. How does he deal with murder hornets? Because he's not going to go and just exterminate them, right? He's Winnie the Pooh. So he's probably going to come up with some crazy idea, right? So maybe somebody gives him an idea. Maybe Rabbit gets an eight ball and starts like chucking ideas out mm. at him. He needs a box with an H on it so he knows there are hornets in <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dude. And what if he, like, has Rabbit hold on to the box and tells him not to open it, and then Rabbit opens up the box and it fills with murder hornets, like his whole... His little hole? Yeah, his whole hole was what I was going to say, but (laughs) I stopped it at hole because I was like, just, that's too many holes. Sometimes you can have too many holes. (laughs) Earn that not safer network. Yeah. So then Rabbit probably has to get rushed to the hospital, right? Oh, yeah, because they sting the fuck out of him. Dude, let's fucking raise the stakes. So second act, Rabbit dies, dude. Damn. Yeah, Rabbit dies. dark. Yeah, because it's like the environment, dude. We're all going to die if we don't take care of it, right? Like if we're doing the wrong thing, it's going to die. So Rabbit dies. So who delivers the news that Rabbit died? I think we all know the answer to this, right? It's Eeyore. Yeah. Sorry, Pooh. Rabbit's dead. And then let's say Winnie the Pooh. Well, he can't go on a honey binge because he doesn't have honey. So what else does Pooh like that we can pervert? I mean, what else does Pooh the, the Christopher Robin? No, because Christopher Robin's got to give him advice in the third act that makes it all okay, right? Isn't that usually what Christopher Robin does is call him a silly bear and tell him what to do? And then Pooh realizes it. Backing it up. Okay. Before. Before what? murder hornets kill rabbit. Yeah. Just before that, he opens the box and is like screaming and running around like his hole runs out of the hole, screaming across the dam like that protects the 100 acre wood and this dam starts to break, but he still gets stung to fuck. Who, Rabbit does? Yeah. So Rabbit doesn't die? Rabbit still dies. Oh, okay. (laughs) But in his running all about on top of the dam, it like causes it to crack. And so it floods the entire 100 acre wood. Okay. All right. Uh, So you got your like global warming, sea rising. Yeah, there you go. So how do we resolve this in the third act? You get, you got Christopher Robin. 
he has to get out his uh, his galoshes. Okay. And he goes, you need to get to work and starts building, rebuilding the dam. Okay. All right. Yeah. And like Rue's pitching in. Yeah, no, not Tigger because we can't use Tigger. <laughs> but we're going to have, we're going to have, we're, yeah. Yeah, owl, that was like airdropping like stuff. Yeah. He's air, well, he's airdropping buckets of water onto the forest while parts of it are on fire. I don't know why, but there's got to be a fire somehow while this flood's happening. So, <laughs> so Al is like airdropping water on this fire that just coincidentally starts. Because the dam, it like knocks over a uh, a lamp. Yeah, it knocks over a lamp, which lights a tree on fire. And even though it's wet down below the tree line on top is on fire right so it's just fucking chaos right so christopher robin gets his galoshes on and then like starts pointing out where everybody can go and al can dump water onto it and then like rue is like bouncing over sticks they just need one more log but they can't find one and out of the brush comes a tiger named tiger And he doesn't jump, but he, like, skips. So it's like a skipping tiger that comes over, and he's like, hey, poo, and then, like, puts the stick in there. And then they work together to stop the crisis. Dude, this is going to make, like, tens of dollars. (laughs) This is awesome, man. Good job. (laughs) I like the murder hornets, too. It's very dramatic. Wait, so the murder hornets force rabbit out of his hole and then when he's in a delirium he knocks out part of the dam which like causes it to collapse yeah because he got stung to shit right and he's just like i need to swim or something like that like he feels like he's on fire so he needs water and he's not thinking because he's in a delirium okay i got this yeah but eeyore has to drown in the third act at the beginning of the third act just to get it to its lowest because we lose rabbit but then it drowns eeyore too (laughs) (laughs) we need real stakes in this movie we need not a dry eye in the house when this movie comes out because like maybe they don't love rabbit enough but women love eeyore dude you can make like grown women cry and just be like why did i buy a ticket to this (laughs) (laughs) what have they done to my childhood (laughs) okay so also four hundred thousand songs from 1923 are also entering the public domain so we're talking like some of the earliest recordings just went up into public domain now if you want to blast your copy of glory glory hallelujah feel free my friend you don't have to pay shit for that now (laughs) you can play it at the restaurant if you want nobody can do anything about it i love it when shit goes in the public domain man it's the best yeah shit should have went in public domain a long time ago you know who's one that should have been in a long time ago uh mickey mouse mickey mouse yeah you know why the the thing keeps getting pushed back the Disney Corporation. Yeah, it's Mickey Mouse. Like, they want to keep Mickey Mouse out, out of public. public domain. So they keep, like... Pushing the goalposts. Yep. Whenever Mickey Mouse is supposed to come up for copyright, they always change the law. They lobby really hard. So we'll see if that holds true again or not. But Okay. So now we were going to prepare our top five movies of the year. Did you remember? Nope. Are you going to try and do this off the cuff? You're going to carl it? All right. So my number five was The Many Saints of Newark. I really enjoyed this movie. It was fun to hang out with The Sopranos again, even if it was just a few of them. I guess like half of the main cast in different form and younger form. Very fun. Vera Farmiga really, really worked in this. And apparently we're getting a prequel series now that's based off of a bunch of people that were in The Many Saints of Newark. So I'm looking forward to this. What do you got for number five, Brandon? So my number five is going to be Free Guy. Free Guy? Yeah. It's one of the few times I feel like a – well, to call it a video game movie is 
kind of wrong because when I think of a video game movie, it's like already existing video game IP. Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. And this it's, is it's like Tron in a way. Like yeah. Tron has video game IP, but it's based off of the movie. You know. Yeah, and Fortnite now has a bunch of free guy stuff, and so it worked backwards this way, but I consider it a movie about video games more than a video game. By the way, that kind of reminded me for Christmas, one of the things that Christian loves most in the world is Monopoly. And so we went to get him a special Monopoly board. And it was so funny because we had like 10 choices and we're looking at it and Amanda's like, so she was like, what about Fortnite Monopoly? And I was like, I don't know if he likes it. And she's like, don't all the kids like it? And I'm like, no, they all either really, really love it or really, really hate it. I was like, we should go somewhere else because I'm not sure which camp he's in. Turns out he really, really hates it. (laughs) (laughs) But we did get him something he liked, which was Spider-Man Monopoly. Uh, It's the newest one. And so it has, for tokens, it's got Peter Parker, like Spider-Man. It's got Miles Morales, Spider-Man. It's got Spider-Man 2099. It's got Ghost Spider, otherwise known as Spider-Gwen. It's got Spider-Ham, and it's got uh, Spider-Man Noir. And I'm here to tell you they're all metal tokens, and they're kind of little. Only one you can tell from a distance is Spider-Ham. All the other (laughs) ones look like they could be the same person from a distance. Like, my eyes are fucking going, but, like, they're so detailed and so beautiful up close. But, man, when you have them a couple feet away from your face, you can't tell shit on those things. So I hope I gave you some time to pick a number four. My number four is The Last Duel. Basically, all of these movies I reviewed. And you are the only person on the planet that has seen this movie. It's not true. I've had three or four people now say, dude, have you seen The Last Duel? And like very excited <laughs> about it because it's a really fucking good Ridley Scott movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I And just... it hits streaming right after it fucking bombed. So people are starting to find it now. Remember I said it was going to be like people's favorite movie that they didn't even know existed. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was really funny because I was watching uh, Colbert last night and he actually made a last the last duel joke and asked if anybody in the theater had seen it and it was crickets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's your number four, Brandon? Uh, Encanto. What the fuck is this? So this is the newest uh, Disney movie. I've never heard it said out loud and I've seen zero commercials for this. I've just seen the poster. So my youngest uh, child had me watch it the other night, and it was pretty good. That's something like they get powers. This family, uh, once you reach a certain age, you get like a gift, which is a power. So like one of the kids, well, it's a, a woman now, but she's incredibly strong. Another one can control the weather or like the weather is based on her moods. One can like grow stuff like flowers and and then the main character does not get a gift. Until and she so does. she has to <laughs> Everything has to fall apart. Basically the house doesn't know what to give her. And so like they like basically burn down the house and like start over and then she has a gift of bringing people together. Okay. Weird. <laughs> it might make more metaphorical sense if I saw it, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, my number three is The French Dispatch, a whimsical movie by Wes Anderson that I happen to enjoy. It's a lot of vignettes, and normally I would not put that in my top five. But for all the 2021 movies I've seen, the Oscar movies are only really just starting to come out, so give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) Like, a lot of them did not come to Helena. My number three is M. Night Shyamalan's Old. Okay. 
Yeah, I guess we talked about that for a while. The yeah. beach that makes you old. Yeah, just uh, watching like how fucked up some of the, like things get is pretty interesting. What do you think would happen if Sprite from the Eternals goes on the beach that makes you go old? I would have to have watched the Eternals to know what the fuck that you're talking about. Fair. I'm going <laughs> to say it's the unstoppable force meeting the unmovable object. It would be interesting. So number two comes with a review. So I watched Licorice Pizza on Christmas, which is the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And I fucking love that movie. It's so much fun. This movie is essentially, it's loosely based off of a true story about this kid who is an actor who is out in the valley in California. And he like got some acting gigs, but then he took his money and basically started popping up businesses everywhere, like trying to take advantage of stuff before he's even 18. And so he did a waterbed business for a while. He built an arcade. He did all kinds of stuff like this. And essentially he meets up with this woman, she's 25, but she's a very immature 25 and has a very quick twitch temper. And he is very, very laid back for his age and a mature 15, but occasionally like gets very, very immature. And so they have this relationship where they really like each other. But like the fact that he's so young keeps getting in the way of various things. And thematically, it's pretty interesting. Like it took a while for me to kind of think about it and think about what they were really trying to say in the movie because Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't make it easy. You know what I mean? Like there's always a lot of stuff going on in his movies and you have to take a little bit of time to think back on it, on what you've seen and reflect. But I think essentially what this movie is about is just like how things can get in the way of a relationship, like how these little um, things that you're paranoid about with yourself you like kind of bounce onto other people and then make it a problem. But the main thing I want to talk about in this movie is my favorite part in it. And God damn it, Bradley Cooper deserves an Oscar nomination for this. So he's playing John Peters in the movie because they go to deliver a waterbed to John Peters. Okay. So do you remember who John Peters is? No. So he was the hairdresser for Barbara Streisand. And then married her and then became this giant Hollywood producer. He produced Tim Burton's Batman, I think was like probably the biggest thing he did. He did The Death of Superman. He was one of the producers on that. So when Kevin Smith gives the giant spider story, that's John Peters he's Uh, talking about, right? Kevin Smith gives this story about how he's trying to write the Superman return script. And at a certain point, John Peters is talking to him and... He's saying, we're going to write a good script. Do you know why? And he's like, no, why? And he goes, because you and me, we're from the street. And he's like, I'm from a street. I don't know the street, but I wanted the job. So I didn't say anything, right? This movie, multiple times he talks about how he's from the street. Like he's (laughs) threatening this 15-year-old kid because they're going to, they they basically jump on the waterbed thing right before it becomes a trend. And so they're running around Hollywood installing waterbeds everywhere. And so he goes to install it for John Peters and John Peters is like coked out of his mind and just like, <laughs> you better not fucking do anything to my house. Like, you know who my wife is? Barbara Streisand. And he's like, Barbara Streisand? And he's like, no, not Zand, Sand. Barbara Streisand. And he's like, Barbara Streisand? And he's like, are you fucking with me? And he's just like, I'll fucking kill your brother. I'll fucking kill your parents. I'm from the street. Don't fuck with me. And he's like going out, like he's all coked out and he just keeps saying he's from the street like over and over again. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. Like the kid just keeps thinking about it and he's getting pissed off about it. And John Peters goes to leave and it's right when the big gas shortage is happening. 
And so the kid is filling up the waterbed and then he just fucking pulls the hose out and just lets us start running through his house and he fucking leaves. They go down the road and then they see that like John Peter's car is stopped in front of him and he's like, yeah, I need to get in your fucking car. Like, I got to go get some gas. So they go to drive him down to get some gas and they're like all fucking paranoid because they're basically destroying his house. So they drop him off at the gas station to go get some gas. Then they fucking like go back up to his fucking car and the kid's still pissed off. So he like smashes in the windshield of the car and then they like jump in the van to leave. But yet I have to ask you. Yeah. Did they find a stranger in the Alp? No. (laughs) Well, that's what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps, you know. But uh, so they jump in the van and then the van's out of gas and they're like, fuck. So they were going up towards it. Right. So. They have to drive backwards in this giant moving truck in neutral down this fucking steep ass hill. And then at a certain point, they like whip around to like go to the gas station and they barely fucking make it like without getting in a wreck. And they show up and you see John Peters is like, he's got this gas can and he's walking down the street and he just fucking like starts yelling something at these people and throws the gas can through the window. Fucking shatters this window and then he sees women walking the other way and he goes to follow him. He's like, hey, you want a peanut butter sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) So the other really funny part about this story is Paul Thomas Anderson was talking to Bill Simmons about making this movie. And so he was writing it during COVID. And so he filmed this with Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid and another unknown actress. And he was trying to get like his friend's sons who were actors to like do this movie. And so it was all like within their quarantine circle. And it was interesting. They wound up pulling it off. I mean, it works. You don't even think about it being a COVID thing, you know? What was really interesting about it was he said at a certain point before he was ready to start shooting, he started thinking, well, I wrote this part about John Peters and he does live close to me. So maybe I should give him a call and kind of give him a heads up. So he calls up John Peters and uh, he's like, yeah, I'd I'd like to hear the script. And he doesn't read his scripts, right? Like Kevin Smith, (laughs) it's so funny because like PTA basically confirmed everything that Kevin Smith said in that story. (laughs) He's like, John Peters doesn't read his scripts. So he went over and he was reading it to him and he was doing the thing where he's making the box above his head and looking at the screen in his mind's eye while he's reading the parts to him. And so he finishes reading it and he can see that John Peters is looking kind of bummed out about something. And he's like, well, what's the matter? He goes, well, you got a good script, kid. Like, it's 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 a good movie. It'll do really well, I'm sure. But he's like, that part where I, I scream at those two girls at the end of my scene, he's like, I wouldn't do that. Like, I would never do that. And he goes, well, what would you do? And he goes, I'd hit on him. So he goes, well, what line would you say to, to hit on him? And he goes, you want a peanut butter sandwich? He literally gets that line from John Peters, which is just like a fucking insane thing. And he, by the way, he read this and had no problem with him being coked out, saying that he would murder a kid, their parents, like their, <laughs> his brother. But he's just like, no, I would sexually harass that random girl walking in the street, not yell at her. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Licorice Pizza, it's a lot of fun. I definitely say check it out. And if you've heard that Kevin Smith story, definitely check it out. Because the John Peters thing, it's an MVP moment for Bradley Cooper. It's fucking amazing. Uh, so what's your number two? So my number two also comes with a review. It's uh, Fear and Loathing on Fear and Loathing in Aspen. So this, for people that don't know, this is actually a telling of the story of when uh, Hunter Thompson ran for sheriff of Aspen. So like the six months or up to a year, like up to running for running for office. 
And I think he was writing stories for Rolling Stone the whole yeah. time about it, right? He's basically flat ass broke. Like he's got his wife and there is this kid. a doc or is this like a biopic or what is it? I would put it more in the biopic category. Okay. And if you're looking for something like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, this is not that movie. Okay. This is more centered around what Hunter S. Thompson was probably like 95% of the time. Okay. Um, this is him living in Aspen, Colorado. He's married at the time. They have a kid. His first wife. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the Rum Diaries when he writes that, the woman he runs off with is based off of his wife or his original wife. He got married a second time. Yeah. He's living in Colorado. He's broke as shit. His wife gets sick. And so he goes and like sees that the local mining company is dumping just a bunch of shit in the river, making his wife sick, goes to the town hall meeting with a bucket of sludge that they're putting in the river and just like pours it everywhere on the, gets arrested by the sheriff. And think they were announcing like he's rerun or uh, running for sheriff again while he's sitting in jail with like all the other like hippies and everything around. They're like, you know, there's more hippies living in Aspen than there are like normal people. Did well, he lose that election by he like one percent? It was a little more okay than that, but oh. it it was very contested. Like he actually did it, so he would have probably won, except basically jumped into it as a third-party candidate, an independent, and was splitting the votes between the two people. So the one dropped out, and so all those votes went to the Republican sheriff. Okay. Yeah, and I was going to say, if I remember right, I like a lot of his writing after that election, he started backing the Democrats because he said it, it was very clear that like if I couldn't win that election as this giant national figure, that like you just can't win an election as a third party candidate. So like it's time for the freaks to move in and take over the Democratic yeah. Party. So that was like his thing. Like he did not trust Clinton at all. He generally genuinely did not like Clinton, but he reluctantly backed him just purely because he was up against H.W. Bush. And so this is a lot of his political ideology really is boiled into this movie on election day. Like he gets up before dawn and is like taking mescaline all day. <laughs> That's Hunter S. Thompson. All right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that that part's pretty great. The one thing I've seen from that election, for sure, is I've seen clips of him on a BBC documentary. And he does look fucking spaced out, which like it's Hunter. He looks that way a lot, you know. But he looked very spaced out. And he's like, well, I always wanted to try and prove the death of the American dream. And this election just proves it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. That's There's some version of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely in there. He gets an offer from Rolling Stone. Because he is already running for office, but he's like, I'm going to get paid for this. So he goes and gets an advance on fear and loathing in Aspen. By the way, Hunter S. Thompson never had money his entire life. No. Because he just blew through it as fast as he got. He was always getting advances. And people who worked with him, who would give advice to other people later who were working with him, would always say, never, ever give him an advance. Because he'll blow through it and he'll claim he needs another one every single time. So just don't give him advances. And I believe he also, during this time, got an advance for fear and loathing 
in Las Vegas. Of course he did. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just a vague thing for I'm going to write about the death of the American dream. Like that was yeah. his whole thing. Was I'm, like, that, And he never finished the uh, death of American dream. Not exactly because Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas became that book. Like, and it's everything he writes about is some version of like the death of the American dream. So it's like, it was just kind of wound up being his beat. You know what I mean? Yeah. I could see a lot of what would become, um, I mean, I've only read two books of his. Which ones? Fear and Loathing, I take it? Fear and Loathing Las Vegas and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. I believe I've read every book he's written except for My Life as Polo because I've never seen it available anywhere. And God damn it, I got a Kindle. I could probably just go buy that shit tonight. So I should probably look <laughs> into it because it's one of those ones I've been like pissed off for years because every now and again I run into someone who's like, oh, it's so fucking good. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Can I borrow it? I, I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> never seen it at a bookstore or anything. I would definitely check it out. It's available on Stars right now. So. Yeah. I've even read his letters, dude. He wrote a compilation of his letters before he died. He basically said everybody always makes money off of authors' letters like after they die. So I just want the money now. (laughs) (laughs) That's on brand. Yeah, it really is. Okay, I don't have a lot extra to say because we talked about this not that long ago, but my number one is Get Back. I fucking really, really loved Get Back, dude. And I got to say, it was the most riveted I was with a movie this year. And it's not just that I spent so much time with it. It just, like, it hit all the areas I care about the most, like, in the depths of my soul. So, yeah, Get Back. That's my favorite movie of the year. I'm going to go... Spider-Man No Way Home. All right. Your favorite Marvel movie and your favorite movie. Yep. We got Carl here. Hey. Okay, so I thought we'd talk about some of the deaths that were going on in the last couple of days. It's been kind of nuts. Yeah, two somewhat expected ones. One very unexpected. Yeah. Just because (laughs) they were in their late 90s. Yeah. Betty White, Sidney Poitier. Well, we already talked about Betty White last week. Who else? Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, yeah. Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. He was also pretty. He was like 82, right? (sighs) Maybe even like 87. Yeah. He was pretty old. You know, Hollywood. 70. But yeah. Bob Saget was only 65. That's like Hollywood 40. Let's start with Bob Saget because I think all of these guys have legacies that are worth talking about. So, Well, I don't have anything to say about Bogdanovich. I don't know him that I well. I have a lot to say about Bogdanovich. Uh, but, all right, I don't talk- really have anything to say about Sidney Poitier either because I don't – he came from an era before I was really interested in movies. <laughs> Well, Sidney Portier, I was shown a couple of his movies when I was a kid. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was one that my dad made a point of showing me because it came out during the civil <laughs> rights era, had this older racist father of this white woman who's marrying Sidney Portier. The whole concept of it is like they're sitting down for a meal and it's mostly based around discussion and the discussion comes around what are you going to do when you have children? Like people are going to look at them strangely. And I mean, it's like a serious movie. Yes. Oh, and dude, then, it's like they, they remade it as like No, a I was about to say 20 years later, dude, not only did the they make it into way. a comedy, but they like race swapped it so it's Bernie Mac is the dad and Ashton Kutcher is the son. Yeah. And that 
that proves that we solved racism in America. Oh God! Dude. <laughs> I just saw the no, trailer. We didn't. I saw the trailer for that, and I was what like, "What a fuck bizarre that movie. flip flop for yeah. them to do." That's pretty weird. It's. I guarantee it was a white writer. <laughs> I would have to look it up, but yeah, I almost. I, know. I almost guarantee based off of the trailer, it was certainly marketed for white people. You could kind of tell. Well, yeah, that Ashton Kutcher in it. Yeah, exactly. But it. I mean, Bernie Mac though. But guess who's coming to dinner? I think was a really important movie for the time. I'm not sure how much the race politics holds up now. I would have to see it again. But I remember it was very much a coming around to the world is more complicated than you would like. And it's not about what people would think, but about what people want in their hearts is basically what the movie is. But. So the remake was directed by Kevin Rodney Sullivan. The director is an actor and a director. He acted in Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai back in the day. That's not impressive um, to me. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> yeah. But then he has directed um, things like uh, episodes of Modern Family and uh, he directed that Lost in Space on Netflix and like a lot of <laughs> Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Titans, Riverdale, Grey's yeah. Anatomy. This guy's all over the board. Uh, there was a movie I think that I saw that was like, oh, he did some of the barbershop movies as well. Like oh, all really? black casts. And okay. I do find that atmosphere of like the stereotypical black barbershop, which like that's a real fucking thing. That's not like some made up by movies because I went to a bunch of them while I was yeah. traveling because I was like, ooh, you know, I am in Montana. Those don't exist in Montana. Yeah, we have barbershops, but there's nobody in them. Ever. Like, like there's one I walk ugh. by all the time. There's never anybody in it except for this one guy, the guy who works there. And he's always like creepily looking Just out the window. Just twiddling his thumbs in his own chair. Yeah. Uh, no, like I got to sit there and get my hair cut while they sassed each other about basketball. Basketball, man. It was amazing. Like arguing over who's the greatest. <laughs> and they're just like, dude, I'm not going not gonna to do a voice. This is like oh, sitting man. down with I was so having <laughs> It was so much fun. When I first walked in there, just like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm just like, I just want to know what this is all about, guys. This place seems awesome. <laughs> I, I've always wanted like a really good fucking haircut from some some barber guys that just like made it their life. You know, like barbers are interesting people. A lot of them fell into it when they joined the military. Like they didn't have a plan. They weren't so like, they, I'm going to become a haircut. Of people. They just kind of like, were like, this is fun. I like doing this. So they get out of the military and they just keep cutting hair. It's okay. Neat. It's neat. But like a lot of guys that wind up barbers happens. It seems to happen accidentally or it's like a family thing. Anyway, going back to Sydney Portier. <laughs> Barbershop. He did. Uh, he did in the heat of the night, which was another thing where he's a black cop and he's got a very racist white partner. And the really interesting thing about Sidney Poitier was he didn't allow Hollywood to put him as a stereotypical black guy at the time. He definitely was very choosy about the roles that he did. And he's known as a great because of it. And he also walked a really tough tightrope because he was doing it at a time even more so than today where it's like if you fucking have a scandal in the press or you have the right movie bomb or whatever like your career is done because they were not going to give you a second chance at that point just because you're not white quite frankly and he had this amazing career he uh, was in in the heat of the night that's literally what i was just talking about which was uh <laughs> i thought that was based on that song by aqua in the heat of the night. No. We way are dancing before a fiesta. Aqua. We way dance before until aqua. siesta. 
No, it's it's about racism and and police officers, basically. My grandma met him one time at uh, Clinton's inauguration in 92. She said it was the only time that she was ever tongue-tied because she's met, like, presidents, like, multiple presidents, Democrat and Republican, like, a number of famous people because of what she did for a living. But Sidney Poitier was the first time, like, she saw him and she was just like, I don't know what to say. She was just, like, awestruck by him. So, and my household was a big deal for sure. He has been, for a long time, Hollywood royalty. Yeah, and he hasn't done a movie for a long time. I think that's part of it. He's the kind of actor that that other famous actors see and are just like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say. <laughs> he also, you know, you know what's really fucked up? All right, I'm, I'm just going to lay this one out. So, you know, the tropey kind of movie, the movies where, where a white teacher comes in and kind of teaches all the minorities how to succeed or whatever, you know, that old trope? Yeah. That started with this movie that Sidney Portier did called To Sir With Love. Okay. Except for it's Sidney Portier going to a British school and he's a black teacher and then he's teaching all of these white students a different way of learning so that they can get ahead. And Hollywood is like, wow, that really works, but let's put a white person at the center of it and like flip it, right? Like it's interesting when we talk about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner because they did it with with that movie as well. They just like flip the races. But this one is like when you flip the races on that type of movie, it comes off as real bad because now it's basically like the white person telling all the minorities like you know this is how to get through life this is like it's it's like almost insulting it, it is insulting it's not almost insulting you guys don't have any advantages because of your race so i'm going to teach you all these advantages and through the power of michelle pfeiffer doing poetry over rap or whatever like i'm going to teach you the right way like it was the leather jacket that really sold it right <laughs> Yeah, so it's a leather jacket for sure. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because like, but that was, I mean, at the very least, she wasn't like coming at these kids like they were her enemies. Like some of the weird substitute teacher movies where like the the guy, like just like the ones where like the teacher comes in and he's like ex-Navy SEAL and there's like gang members in the classroom and the guy goes up and like, will do things like throw the eraser with unerring accuracy across the room and hit the kid in the face with an eraser and like getting in their faces and like, I'm going to fight you. And they're like, I'm going to fight you. And I'm like, this is doing nothing to help teacher-student relations. <laughs> in fact, it's making it worse. I've actually, uh, on a tangent, what are you surprised? Waiting for Superman was a, I think, Obama-era documentary that came out that was like sponsored by a bunch of these super liberal organizations. And it was about gifted kids trying to like succeed in difficult situations and it was critically acclaimed when it came out and a lot of of, uh, rich liberals patted themselves on the back for having participated in the production of it bill gates bill gates yeah he he a liberal i think he at least on his face he is i would say more liberal than conservative because he does stuff that benefits people (laughs) Okay. He's, I, I mean, he's a capitalist. I, I, he's a capitalist at his core. But can what I, I'm saying is like, out he do, okay, he donates to liberal yes, causes. He donates but, to NPR. But here's the That's, thing. Here's it's the a thing. low bar. Number, number one, you don't get I to, don't want this. This is not the point no, no, of this. So I don't the, want to turn this into a fight. Dude, Bill Gates. none of this was the point of what we were talking about. Like Bill Gates, number one, you don't get to be richest man in the world being liberal. <laughs> like number two, and this is the big one that people don't talk about. Yeah, he did the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know how much he puts 
in, he puts in just enough but that he can write off my a point taxes. It's not what he is in it. his heart of hearts. My point is what he's portraying himself as. He's 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 definitely aligned himself with the left, not with the right. He's not going on Fox News. He's doing this other shit. And I'm sure that the fact that he doesn't go on all that shit is what has helped keep him out of the radar and keep his reputation from being worse than it is. You know, because I mean, yeah, there's his divorce. And, but I mean, look at Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Like they're all terrible. They, all uh, but them. they are cons- they are por- they're like considered by our society as worse because they are in our faces more flying into space and building fucking hyperloop tunnels and calling scientists that are trying to save little Chilean kids or Chinese, wherever the the kids in the cave. And he's like, use my submarine. And they're like, that submarine will never work. And he's like, you're a pedophile. As Elon Musk. That happened? Yes. <laughs> there were a bunch of kids weird. trapped in a cave because they went in for a school thing, but tide came in sooner than they anticipated and it rose the water level and the, the passage. And so they were trapped at the back of the cave. And it was really difficult to get through the cave underwater because it's got twists and turns. And like they had to send divers basically with extra oxygen tanks to get oxygen to these kids because they were going to die otherwise. And he's like, I've developed a submarine. And they're like, it's never going to get through the turns. This design is completely wrong for this job. And he accused the guy of being a pedophile just out of nowhere, like because he was mad that they declined his assistance. But he wasn't doing it to help these kids. He was just trying to boost his own profile. Yeah. And Bill Gates doesn't do any of that shit. And I'm sure he's a monster, but he is less of a public monster, let's say. You know who wasn't a monster? Sidney Poitier. (laughs) The... uh, (laughs) Waiting for Superman, though, the long-term impact of that movie was that people used that to be like, see, this is why teachers don't need any money. They're the bad guys now. They were kind of portrayed negatively, like certain teachers in general were portrayed very poorly by this documentary. And so, like, the documentary has ultimately done a lot more damage than it's done help. But liberals, rich liberals, still use it to pat themselves on the back and say, see how much we care? Right. So when we talk about the trope, for example, of, like, flipping Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, specifically, like, Dangerous Minds, it's just to make white liberals feel good. Yeah. Like, it really is. Or, like, not the help, but the uh, blind side. Have you actually seen that movie uh i've seen enough of it to know that i don't want to see any more of it's it it's so goddamn <laughs> insulting the guy that it's about like it's not was, even accurate no he was that's like, more frustrating. they portray him as being almost borderline retarded yeah yeah and the guy who saw who the movie's based off of like he plays the nfl and he's just like why did they portray me that way like he really really didn't like the movie but you didn't hear much of that because all of it was oscar buzz around sandra bullock you know yeah. the star of the fucking movie about the athlete was that um, Sandra Bullock. was that also though one of those movies where it was nominated for best picture but also then nominated for a Razzie for like worst picture which I'm not a big fan of the Razzies but there's so, a couple of times that's <clears throat> happened where yeah, like typically what the Razzies does they do two specific things one is they pick a bomb that's like a big profile bomb and they like pile on yeah and the other thing is the bigger the star in a movie that doesn't work the more likely they are to nominate it for a million things, whether it deserves it or not. This is why I don't like the raspberries very much. Yeah, like, I'm not we a used fan. To, we used to like go through it and I could usually pick out what the winners would be based off of who's in the picture, right? Like whoever's the hottest actor that was in a thing that bombed is usually the one who winds up with arm full of things. Like it, it did kind of create this headspace where you could see a movie 
coming and go, that's going to be the Razzie worst picture of the year. Like, Unless it makes money. <laughs> like uh, I think one of the most obvious ones in recent years was that Holmes and Watson, uh, right. Will Ferrell. See, that's perfect. Because, abortion of a movie. <laughs> because they were like – they were on a hot streak with the movies they were doing together. And yeah. then when nobody wants to see that. Yeah, of course it's the worst movie in No, no, no. It really is genuinely together. very, very No, bad. I know. But the but, Razzies always like pump it up. You know, I also I didn't like that they singled out Lauren Lapkus because I love Lauren Lapkus, and they were like, the, oh, the truth is, leave Lauren alone. But if you take that exact same movie and you have lesser known actors in it, it just doesn't. Get it's not going to be on the Razzies. They don't give a shit because it's not on anybody's radar. They are all about kicking celebrities when they're down. That's yeah. the main thing the the Razzies do. Their first winner ever for worst picture was The Shining. So that should tell you like how much integrity the Razzies. Well, have. I mean. Stephen King hated it. I will say I do agree with one thing Stephen King said about The Shining, which is like in his book, the book is the story of him losing his mind. Like at the beginning of the book, The Shining, he's not insane. He is driven insane by the right. co- over the course of the book. When you see Jack Nicholson at the beginning, he kind of seems already a little bit unhinged because <laughs> it's Jack Nicholson, and we're, right? We're it, it's that. hard to uh, it's hard to look at a guy like Jack Nicholson or Willem Dafoe and not be like going on. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think you could argue successfully that The Shining was the worst movie of 1980. You know what I mean? Like that's probably that's not. a pretty ridiculous no, that's, argument. It, it bombed with a lot of. Cr- Critics. That's what the Razzies do. See, I think the Razzies should be more like this is the most overrated thing. Like, not necessarily this is the worst thing ever, but like this thing is so much worse than everybody is saying. A movie that would be a good example of winning that would be like Phantom Menace, where like the movie comes out. Oh, I'm sure Phantom Menace rave reviews, and then it's like, wait, this is actually not what everybody is saying that it is. Or like, uh, I don't know. What rave reviews are you hearing about the Phantom Menace? No, like (laughs) the ones that the ones that came out either right before the movie was hit the theaters or the ones that came out right when it hit theaters before when people were just super excited to go back to star wars gotcha Uh, and they hadn't given themselves time to let the actual movie sink in and like think too hardly about it and then it was like hey wait a minute (laughs) it took me a while there were yeah Yeah. it was a weird thing where people just had this it was a blind spot for like well it was so pervasive in culture too i mean like star wars was so so big and the fact and that it was coming back. We had talked our, ent- like my entire life, we had talked about like, what will it look like when they do these movies? Cause we knew he was going to put them out. He'd been talking about it since, you know, before I was born, you'd always say the plan was nine movies, right? So you knew that this was eventually coming and we'd always be like, how did he wind up in the robot suit and stuff like that? You know? And, uh, so What's it going was going on with this giant bear. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And Slugman. How's Slugman doing? <laughs> Slugman. All right. Well, I think we could close the book on Sidney Porto. <laughs> uh, very quickly, I'll bu- Saget. Real bummer that he passed. He's, he's interesting to me, and I'm not going to break the wheel talking about him, but basically, I grew up with him being in Full House and uh, America's Funniest Home Videos and thought about him one way, and then we watched his HBO stand-up special, which my mom immediately ushered me out of the room because he is foul in his yeah. stand-up. Like, he definitely worked 
looked blue, which wouldn't have been a big deal except for he was who he was. So it was just like, what the fuck? And then he directed Dirty Work, which is still one of my favorite comedies. Like, I just have a soft spot a mile wide for it. I know it's not, like, sterling, but there's some really, really funny things in it. And I think that they were like, he's in Half-Baked, right? Like, he's got that line where uh, where Dave Chappelle goes to rehab for marijuana. <laughs> And, like, they're all telling him it's ridiculous that he's in rehab for marijuana. Bob Saget stands up and he goes, I suck dick for coke. You ever suck dick for marijuana? And he's like, um, no. And he's like, boo this man. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody boos. Voice over on how you, how... You met your mother. How mothers were met each other. Right. How mothers are mating. The mating of meeting of mothers. <laughs> yes, all of that. So that's all I really got to <laughs> say about Bob Saget. He had an interesting duality to his career. We're going to get a 10 billion uh, videos and clips of stuff from his body of work. And I'm looking forward to it because as much as that is a that story of yours of learning about the duality of Bob Saget, that is like the story that everybody has about Bob Saget. And because I'm, it is the story I'm of Bob Saget. I'm so excited to finally learn some new stories about Bob Saget. Yeah, People sure. are going to start telling stories well, that are not the same story did... about him that I've heard of from okay. everybody. And I'm trying... I don't mean to say that in a way that it does kind of sound like I'm diminishing your so, experience, but everybody had that when experience. I talked about, that actually like brings us all together. We all had that yeah. that shared experience. When I of talked learning about it. Norm McDonald's drug problems, I knew about that because like on Dirty Work, he and Bob Saget and uh, what's his face used to be on the Stern Show, like uh, Artie Lang, were all like mm. heavily doing coke on that movie. Norm Macdonald, I don't think went down the dark hole that the other two did, but like they definitely had a big cocaine addiction, and so that's another thing that you'll probably hear in the yeah. time going forward is just like his struggle with sobriety because that's Which definitely may have contributed too. to his death because sometimes you can quit drugs. But the damage has still been done. Yeah, ultimately, and like if we hear heart failure, that's a pretty good indication that you know there were just like ruined valves or something like that. It's very sad. It yeah. was too soon. He had more in him, I think. He had like a whole Twilight career ahead of him where he's doing like Leslie Nielsen type shit. Possibly. He could have been the next Leslie Nielsen. Well, I don't know because he's. <laughs> I like, just like him picturing Bob Saget with pure white hair and I like it. Yeah. When he's <laughs> in front of the camera, he tends to be wholesome for the most part, unless it's a very short thing. Well, Leslie Nielsen's comedy is not lot. exactly. I mean, Leslie it's Nielsen's, pretty toothless. Leslie Nelson's <laughs> deal was like he was a serious actor who happened to do a comedy like Airplane, and he already had this big long career in Hollywood playing like a serious role as a character actor. And then he does Airplane, and he does the exact same thing he does in those roles. But when it's like written that way, it came out as very funny. And so they were like, "Oh, we can use this." So the Zucker brothers just kept going back to him, and then know. he He's built up this comedy. He got he got there towards the end of his career yeah. but if you think about the ones that are oh, really the successful early work. like he's the, the ones that he's known for it's like airplane naked gun um it's really airplane and naked gun yeah <laughs> like that's what he's most known for but dracula like, dead and loving it later on yes so that's like <laughs> that's a few years before he spy dies hard. So that's like the right? end was yeah. he spy hard <laughs> yes derek spy hard or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's like uh, at the end of his career where it's like he's just struggling to to keep relevant so he's so doing now, cheap comedy who is the next leslie 
Nielsen. Oh. It's like, who's going to take on that when they hit 65? Andy Samberg? So, no, no he They have to be serious. It, yeah. They have to be serious. It has to be a serious character actor. <sighs> you know, I think the closest we have to it right now is John C. Riley because John C. Riley was a serious character actor, but he can also do comedy. So he got started on it earlier, but I feel like he's the closest that we have. Actually, you know what would be fucking fantastic is if, let's say, five years from now, we just see Daniel Day-Lewis do a hard right turn into comedy, but he still... approaches it like he approaches there will be blood adam driver has proven that when you take the daniel day lewis character and put it into a silly setting it is comedy gold i'm talking when he does the there will be blood character and he visits his son's school as like a parent like the bring your dad to work or to school thing and he's like got the the long white hair and the cane and he's like what you do to get ahead in this world is you crush your enemy's bones into dust <laughs> it's like there's like one kid in the class that's just really vibing <laughs> with this guy screaming about destroy your enemies kill <laughs> well you'll be missed bob saget <laughs> yep <laughs> Fold off that tab. Okay, so the last one is Peter Bogdanovich. This is the most interesting guy to me out of all of them. I just happened to be listening to a documentary on him. He's the one I know the least about. Yeah, so this was a couple of years ago, and he, to me, is the most interesting. So he starts out as a writer. He basically interviews guys like Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock, like all of these legendary directors, and does these very, very in-depth biographies for him and like works to put them into museums and things like that for motion pictures. And then he takes what he learns and he goes to Roger Corman and he starts writing some scripts for Roger Corman. And then he directs a movie, which by all means should have been an awful movie, but it winds up being kind of successful. And he takes old footage and he's got Boris Karloff in it. And he winds up writing this story about a guy who climbs a bell tower and what kind of led there. And it winds up being kind of a hit. And then he does a couple of seminal movies in the 70s. He does The Last Picture Show, which we talked about on this podcast, about how that kind of started this heel turn into the sex comedy, but it used to be something more intelligent, more thoughtful, and then how it kind of got perverted over the years, and now how it's kind of going back in that direction. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich kind of had the alpha example of that, like that the very first version that then wound up being twisted over and over again. He did What's Up, Doc? which was like this big comedy. So he did a lot of different kinds of movies. He did Paper Moon, which was kind of like a shysters on the road kind of story, like a father and oh, son. Oh, he did are... Mask. And then he did, later in his career, did Mask, although <laughs> he wanted to use Bruce Springsteen music because the, the Rocky kid that they were portraying was a big Springsteen fan, and they swapped it out with Bob Seger because it was cheaper, <laughs> and he got pissed off. And he Bob refi- Seger is cheaper. He refused to uh, take credit for that because he was like... <laughs> Like, without my music, it's not my picture. Oh, right. And then I believe his last movie was Running Down a Dream. He did that four-hour Tom Petty documentary, which I love. I think it's a perfect documentary. Nope. It's 2014, so She's Funny That Way. Okay, so he did something since since then. It's about a, a love triangle on the set of a playwright's new project, and it's got Imogen Poots, Owen Wilson, Jennifer Aniston, Catherine Hahn as the top four. Just out of curiosity, when did Run 
running down a dream come out then? 2007. Wow, it's that old, huh? Yes. I had no idea. Be oh, wait, best... what's The Great Buster? Documentary about Buster Keaton. He directed that in 2018. He has two upcoming projects. I don't know if they're going to get they completed. They may not, yeah. Turn I'm... of the Century was, okay, nothing no information on that and one lucky moon no one that was in pre-production yeah one of them was in development one was in pre-production so that's feel like one lucky moon was the one i thought i'd heard him talk about that it was a thing he's been wanting to do his entire career and he was finally getting the opportunity to do it so that's a real bummer here's some crossover in 1996 he did a tv movie called to sir with love Two. <laughs> he did the sequel to the Sydney Poitier movie with Sydney Poitier again. Yeah, yeah. He directed. Wow, that. you can't make this up. He's man. done TV. He did a lot of TV movies yeah, because though. his career very flat. prolific. Yeah, um, television movie. So he also will probably be best known now. Like when you talk about people that aren't boomers, he's probably best known as the psychiatrist of the psychiatrist in The Sopranos. Yeah. Like he was brought on as an actor, but he also had a very interesting personal life. He wound up marrying Sybil Shepard, who was his star in uh, The Last Picture Show, and winds up running through a few marriages that seem to overlap. But what's really weird is like the exes never really hate him. They're always is just kind of like well like it is what it is like he's a very emotional guy and that's just peter just like crazy you would think that you would especially when it winds up being this whole high profile thing you would get upset but they never seem like they're very upset with him the other thing is like he was engaged to dorothy stratton who was this playboy playmate they made a movie about her star 80 but uh her ex-boyfriend who was this pimp he wound up just going fucking crazy and he was trying to control Dorothy Stratton all the time and Peter Bogdanovich met Paul her. Paul Snyder. Uh, he met her at the Playboy Mansion. He murdered her. And then he murdered her, yeah. And, and so killed himself. Murder-suicide. That was the start of Peter Bogdanovich's like personal life and career kind of spiraling down for a while. And well, then the that's really fair. strange, the really strange <laughs> coda to that is that 20, I want to say 20 years later, he married her younger sister because they just stayed in contact <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could like they bonded over their mutual grief over the loss of str- of her, and then eventually, like twenty years later, yeah. wound up they, having a relationship. That's, yeah, that's which is that's fucking. A, it's weird. It's but weird, it's, but I'm also like, I kind of get it a yeah, little bit. I get yeah. it a little bit. Yeah, it's you can paint that creepy if you want, but I I did a lot of thinking. They about They waited that. twenty years, and also <laughs> and also like if the mother is okay with it, it makes me think like it's probably not as creepy as we think it is. You know. Because I heard her talking on it. I mean, I don't think it's creepy. I do think it's weird, but not like creepy. Unless he's like 30 or 40 years older than her. Oh, he is. Okay, now it's creepy. But he's he's older than most of the people he married. I mean, he had the he has (laughs) the uh, he has the uh, the um the personal connection that probably makes it make sense. But still, come on. I'm not defending him. He's also, if you want to go back to Stephen King again, he's in (laughs) it chapter two. Yeah, I saw that playing himself basically. Yeah, yeah, playing a director. Yeah. So interesting life, interesting career. But let's get back into uh, Boba Fett because this last episode dropped. And you liked it better. I love this last episode. It's and, pretty great. And for a lot of reasons, the first one I wanted to mention is Galen Howard, who is on the show. I want to say that our second episode, like somewhere around the beginning. So close to a year ago, we had him on and he was talking about Brooklyn Nine-Nine and just coming up and acting. And he was in this episode. It was super yeah. exciting. Yeah, it was funny. Like uh, I, 
never met him with the show or with our show or anything, but I've been following him just because of that. I I, I marked him as a favorited actor on IMDb, so I get notifications <laughs> when he shows up and stuff. But I didn't get one for Book of Boba Fett, and I'm watching it. And I was like, where do I know this guy from? He looks so familiar. And I, I kept thinking, like, was he one of the computer people in Legion? Because there's like these characters in Legion that are like synthetic people. They're like human computers and they're in like body suits and they have feminine bodies, but they have bowl cuts and mustaches, very much like Galen's natural mustache that he just has. It's a great mustache, by the way. Yeah. And so it's like, was he that? And I was like, no, no, that's not it. And then uh, you called me and were like, Galen Howard. And I was like, oh, that's where who it was. And I was just like, <laughs> but I did recognize him when I saw him and was like, I know this guy and I like him. So if you guys aren't aware of what he looks like as he puts it he's one of the doobie brothers is what he always says like he's got a look that gets him work you know and uh he plays the clerk to the mayor the one that is eventually shoved to the side like physically by the mayor's assistant who is probably behind this hit stuff i'm guessing but now galen aside in that episode they had fun easter eggs in it and also i'm a sucker for a making a weapon movie anytime they have a scene where it's just like showing their seminal you know like tool like like the shield and uh flash of the titans like the original one for example i fucking love that kind of stuff or even all the iron man montages of him developing his suit are pretty good when he's in the cave yeah like or even that, when he's like in his but lab it's specifically that it's like when they're on their journey to make the thing that's yeah gonna, yeah yeah i i'm a fucking uh, thor making stormbringer yeah yeah absolutely it's pretty epic yeah pretty, he has to like pretty fucking cool take and when a groot, direct hit from a star to when like groot like uses his arm to yeah, like do the handle good. and shit that's great good stuff even in the first tom holland spider-man when he like starts designing a suit and like Iron Man's like looking at him like this kid's going some places man look at him working so hard being a little smart little no no that was nerd. Fav's looking at him oh right after Tony dies. right 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 yeah yeah that scene even that scene like not to the same extent but a little, it had it had like a little bits and pieces yeah, of that pieces in there of that DNA yeah, yeah yeah I agree and now he is the ultimate shepherd because that's a shepherd's crook <laughs> right <laughs> but I guess Our those are stick Jaffa stick? Jaffa? I, I don't know. It was a like, Jaffa stick. We were saying Jaffa last week, and then I've heard a lot of people say Gaffa, and I'm just wondering if oh, this is, is the, this the GIF, GIF, GIF thing. Yeah. It's, if no, it is, I got to say Gaffa stick to be con- I could have. I swear <laughs> it's spelled with a J, though. I swear it's spelled with a J. I have no idea. But while you're looking that up, there was also some fun Easter eggs in there. We had Black Chrysanthemum show up, so that was the dark Wookie. And what's really interesting is- Nope, I, I'm way wrong, G-A-F-F-I, Gaffy. Yeah. The first appearance of that Wookiee was in that Darth Vader comic at, that I showed you, and he's hired with Boba Fett by Darth Vader to do some stuff. So, like, they are very familiar with each other when they show that Wookiee. That Wookiee is a crazy fun villain. It doesn't talk. They never subtitle when he's, like, growling. They do, like, Groot thing where... They just talk back to him or they do the the Chewie thing where Han just talks to Chewie and Chewie just growls and Han just talks back. And you get what like he everyone plays the rock like the rocket raccoon role in like outwardly translating for the audience's sake. But nobody else is really like, yeah, (laughs) or like Leela in that Futurama episode where she's like, oh, and then you go on to say. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> this character at some point had his bones replaced by metal, so he's got the Wookie. Yeah, he's got a little bit metal of bone the Wookie Wolverine thing going mm. on. <laughs> I don't know if I like that. I hope they don't. It's, I'm, okay, whatever. They, they probably won't address it, but it's like he can take tons of damage and deal out tons of damage, right. and he's That's like the point practically indestructible so okay. it's like that's kind of the point is like he's a step up and they are they always do the cybernetic shit in star wars anyway that's like a, a trope for star wars it's you lose a hand now you got a robotic hand, right. right i guess like, it is more prevalent in star wars than i re- realized because i don't think of it as like a very heavy robot show there's lots of droids and stuff but i don't think of it as like a cybernetic type show very right. often but but it really is yeah like very much so with rebreathing and yeah fake hands galore yeah everyone getting their hands cut off darth vader is more machine than man right like that's one of the themes of the original trilogy even like uh grievous is like a cyborg technically isn't he yeah he was like human or or or, or he was organic at some point yes and on the inside like he still has like a heart right i don't know something like that because it opens like a video game thing and they that's how they destroy him but yeah they're like <sighs> uh, shoot his extremities and that opens up the weak spot in the middle now shoot the middle it's star fox so it's playing dumb. star fox it's like every video game yeah. we're like oh and it happens to glow <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you can so you know you're supposed to hit it like yeah why does the why does the boss always stand directly underneath the chandelier <laughs> and then you shoot the chandelier <laughs> and it falls on him <laughs> so that wookie also black chrysanthemum remember in book of boba fett i think in the first episode when that alien like gives that Wookiee pelt to Boba as a tribute. Okay. So that species of alien tends to make their living off of trapping Wookiees and then, you know, like selling their hides and things like that or mm. enslaving them. So Black Chrysanthemum kills a Wookiee to like get one of their attention so that he can like then kill that guy for a bounty. Like this bounty hunter is fucking evil and dark and difficult to deal with and so he's going to be a really fun character i don't know how much they're going to show him in the series it might just be like i feel like the way he was growling and stuff we're going to see more of him in this show it could be a later series but i'm betting in this series like we're not done with him i yet. don't want him to be too evil because i want to like him oh he's pure evil though <laughs> Okay. Well, I do. I am looking forward to seeing a scene of him just like tearing people apart. Yeah. <laughs> I want to yeah. see him just like tear his we way We want to see the unhinged Wookiee. That's yes. the thing. We always see well, the good Wookiee or the subjugated unhinged. I mean, Wookie. I want to see him in control, but I want to see him like fully like and not because, you know, that's the other thing. Chewbacca is a big ass bear of a creature and he just like shoots a crossbow. What? Yeah, bowcaster. That's like you don't give your tank a ranged weapon. Right. You don't. Well, and Chewie's subjugated in a way too, right? Like he has a life debt to Han Solo. Like he feels like he has to say stay in Han Solo's stead. Han Solo's the real villain. <laughs> Hero of his own story. Dude, that slavery runs across Star Wars. It's Fuck like you, it's Solo. pretty nuts. I'm glad you're dead, Han Solo. It's, droids, droids are second class <laughs> citizens in star wars me and harrison ford are both glad that you're dead han solo (laughs) well chewbacca did sleep with with uh harrison ford's wife so he's probably not a fan of him either right did you ever see those sketches on snl it was on like jimmy kimmel they had harrison ford on the phone and he's like air force one two got it and then like you hear chewbacca's growl and he's like get the hell out of here 
she was my wife. And he's like going off on this whole thing. And, and like Chewbacca growls back at him. And he's like, she was coughing up hairballs for three months. And then later they add another thing where Chewbacca is going to commit suicide. And he's on the edge of a building. And so they get Harrison Ford to try and call him down. And then he tells him to jump at a certain point. <laughs> this this must have been like Jimmy Kimmel. Because I feel like it was Kimmel, if it yeah. was on Conan O'Brien, I would have seen it. Because I watch way too much Conan O'Brien. I've heard Kimmel talk about it. He learned from Conan. Because they are friends. Like they're they're actually, they hang out sometimes. But like Harrison talk. Ford loves to t- make fun of Star Wars. So what they figured out was like Conan O'Brien knew that Harrison Ford was surly and so he was like I'm just gonna keep throwing bits at him instead of like having a normal interview which he'll buck against I'm just gonna throw bits against it so that he can kind of just have fun like play a persona right yeah so he would do that and then so Kimmel was like okay so if I want Harrison Ford on the show I should do it in sketches because he'll get to act and then he won't be so difficult and it won't be hard and so that like he kept bringing bringing him in for that right yeah like that's why Conan was is able to get so much out of Harrison Ford because he loves <laughs> fucking with interviewees. Or like having Jordan Slanchke bring out his Millennium Falcon Lego and <laughs> No, no, he, it was the Death Star. Yeah, and he just so like he's been working on throws like it over years. his head behind him and smashes it on the ground. No, he's he's so holding fakely. it and he like drops it, is what happened. Oh no, he goes, whoa! And like literally, <laughs> yeah. like it's so clearly intentional. Yeah. That he just like throws it on the ground behind him. And Jordan's <laughs> just standing there. But I was man, I gotta say this real quick. I la- I went I was He watching. was the one, by the way, dressed as Spock who flips off everybody in line at the Star <laughs> Wars convention. I was watching Conan do an old bit where he's like giving Jordan Schlansky a hard time for coming in late on Fridays or something. And he's like in his office waiting for him to show up and he just starts kind of going through his stuff and he gets into this one box and he's like ah an action figure of a star wars imperial officer in the box and another one for backup <laughs> he's like and then he finds cufflinks that are darth vader mask cufflinks and he's like oh for his wedding <laughs> and then he says by the way if you want to get jordan slanchke a, a gift for his wedding i think he's registered at toys r us <laughs> <laughs> And like that was clearly just like a joke that he came up with off the top of his head, making fun. Like he's probably said that before. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a good joke. <laughs> it made me laugh, and it's so funny how that show's been off the air now for like six, eight months. Sure. And they just every single day they upload old clips from the show onto YouTube, and I just watch it every single day. I'm like, ooh, new clips from Conan's show, and I just not new, but like. Right. Here's one from 93. He he was on TV for so long. That is almost like a notable death of 2021. Not the death of Conan O'Brien's career, but like the end of a multi-decade run. He went to cable and it was just like kind of easy to lose track of him. But he all, but he's he didn't nobody's lost track of Conan O'Brien. His podcast is the number 1 of all of us. He is the he like just was like I'm going to just do a podcast and it became the best one. Or like the biggest one. 
It's definitely up there, but there's a couple. He is our overlord. He's our podcast overlord. No, he's our podcast. This American American Life is perennially the number one podcast. He's Peter Peter Sagal's. No, what's that guy's name? Peter Siegel? Are you talking about the host? That's wait, wait, don't tell me. But I got to mix it. Yeah, who's the name? This American guy? I'm. uh, Oh, uh, 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 God damn it. I can (laughs) see him in my head too because he looks like J.J. Abrams. (laughs) Glass? Ira Glass? Ira Glass. Ira Glass. I got it. <laughs> Related to Philip Glass, they're both inseparable. No, I like actually. I like Ira Glass a lot. He seems like a pretty. pretty I like uh, This American Life. I'm guy. going to throw out a shot at This American Life because it frustrates me that it's always number one. Purely because they do this bullshit where they only let you get one episode at a time. They have it for one week. Oh, and that's I see. It. Well, it's and, like and they do that because they do reruns all the fucking time. So the podcast is rerun all the time. And to that, I'm like, fuck you. That's not the. <laughs> medium the medium is you put it all up or you at least like let 25 sit there or something it shouldn't like that. count as a podcast because it is first and foremost a radio program i'm fine with that because that's how i first listen to podcasts it's also most of them d- it, it is shows. a different experience too because like the radio program is much more heavily edited and the podcast version is usually less edited yeah and what i liked about the npr stuff because that was some of the first stuff i listened to on podcasts was because you know it's hard to catch it in my car or like sitting at home yeah or when I was at work or whatever. And then it's like, oh, I can listen to it when I need to. That's how I got my mom to listen to podcasts. I was like, all of those shows you love that you keep telling me you sit in your driveway and like wait yeah, to finish the show. You don't have to do that. You don't have you to do that anymore. that shit now. Dude, I only had to tell her that <laughs> once and then she figured it out. So my mom's pretty great at that. She might be listening right now, actually. She listens to us a lot. Who knew we were going to, on a Disney Plus family show, watch a character do a go on a drug-induced spirit journey? Ayahuasca trip. With yeah. lizard up the nose. Yeah. I like the way it jumps out of his nose, Or that too. we would get incestuous huts. It kind of looked that way, right? Dude, the way they were using that little, like, hamster-looking thing is, like, to mop the sweat off of his face. Yeah. It was like, And it was clearly in distress. <laughs> it was clearly in distress. I was like, this is disturbing. Why? It's all a power play, right? Why? Do these creatures, do these other aliens allow huts to have any power whatsoever? What gives them their control over all of these other beings? I don't understand. They're just... Leia was able to strangle Jabba to death with a chain. Like, they're not a threat. I can say... Are they going to roll over on you? They are a threat. Why? Because... Do they have psychic powers? Jedi mind tricks don't work on them, for example, like things like a that. A gun will but work on hold them. On, hold on, I'm, get, I'm getting into you it. Shoot like, them in the face. The Emperor <laughs> and Darth Vader let the huts do their thing. So that's part of it is that like they allow them to have their criminal empire. They allow them to like run spice and do all of this other stuff. That is definitely a thing that's there. So part of their power comes from the fact that like the people in charge realize that this stuff has to happen. So like you know, you have the guy on your side do it, right? I think that the behind the scenes... But there's somebody... Like, remember when they were talking about the hut and he's talking about, like, going to to war with them? And she's like, there are huts, you'll need permission to do that? Who's given permission? Like, I feel like we're going to get that answer in the show, right? Like, there's somebody who's put the hut into this position of power, I think. I know, but I thought that huts... Okay, so huts are not a... That's not a family name. That's it, a race name. The huts are a species. No, it's a family of that what species. What are they then? It's a good question. I don't know. See, I this but is what I they're think. They're always blank the hut. I think 
that I think that Star Wars, like the early Star Wars, they didn't really put that much thought into the backstory of entire species of aliens. They just were like, put drop, make up a cool costume and put them in the background. And then fans were like, I need to know every single scrap, every detail on every single one of these creatures in the background. And it's almost like the huts. And this is from the extended universe, old school novels and stuff that have come out. I've never seen a hut portrayed as anything other than a crime lord. Almost as though every single hut alien on in the universe is a crime lord. Like, that's what their species does. Okay, there's two things I can point to. One is Clone Wars. The f- very first thing that they do with Clone Wars, they did the thing that came out in the theaters. It's not very good, but it's Jabba the Hutt's son who doesn't want to be in his crime empire. <laughs> and so, like, Jabba, like, he gets kidnapped, and so they're trying so to retrieve him so for Jabba. He's Scott Evil. What's that? He's Scott Evil. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> But I don't think he like takes over in the criminal <laughs> empire either. And then there's, and then later there's a hut who uh, also doesn't want to be in the crime empire. That's in Star Wars Visionaries. Maybe it's the same but character. T- okay, but like but that he's just like pro- playing in a band. That's still and just like for proves my point that like they're trying to they're rebelling it. against yeah. the stereotype crime lord lifestyle of a hut. I think it might be like a species and a family name. I'm like, not sure. Because but. like it's the same thing of like are you ever are we ever going to be like uh, going through an episode of a show and the guy walks into a bar and the bartender is a Yoda that doesn't have any force powers and is just a regular alien that looks like a Yoda and is a Yoda but is just like oh I'm just a bartender. Bartender I am. Like whatever. Uh, make drink you I will. It's make you possible, drink I will. but like, that one is a little less I mean, likely it, just it, in that we've only seen three of them ever and they've right. all been force users. And that's my whole thing is like they don't put that much thought <laughs> It's like very, it feels very like uh, broad, broad strokes. They're brushing, painting these characters with very broad yeah, strokes. And then some of them get more fine tuning because like you spend more time with them. But that's part of the sandbox, right? Is like you just sit there and develop yeah. the story more and more. And some of these alien races are developed as a species like the Tuscans in Book of Boba Fett or uh, um, even this race that are on the train. You know, we are not learning any of those aliens names. We're just learning how they behave as a group. So this that's like a study of their culture. But they do widen out some of them like Twi'leks, for example, seem like they were solely dancers at first. And then you start to get different versions of Twi'leks. Like they're only only dancers. No, but the mayor's assistant is a Twi'lek. Right. Right. Like you get all kinds of them now. But that's because it was one of those ones people really. So now they get two jobs. They're either either they're a dancer or they're a consigliere. Oh, no, because <laughs> uh, there's a because there's a Bib rebel Fortuna. There's a rebel pilot. That's a Twi'lek. I'm just saying uh, Bib Fortuna is a Twi'lek and he was the consigliere to Jabba the Hutt. And now this Twi'lek is the consigliere to the mayor. Right. So it's like. But then like Hera, who's one of the main characters of Rebels, I can is see not a consigliere. I can like, see she a Twi'lek being a good fighter because if they make good dancers, they probably make good fighters since dancing and fighting are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I think. It's just more that they're around Tatooine a lot. 
So it's like also we're going to see these different types of aliens in more diverse types of roles as the makeup to make them look like the humans look like Twi'leks gets easier to apply. <laughs> and yeah. you don't have to spend like 12 hours in a makeup chair like that makes a huge difference. I don't know if we would have gotten uh, 10 performances of, as Iron Man out of Robert Downey Jr. If he, he had, had to actually the wear the suit for every single one of those movies because yeah. he wore that shit in the first one and he stopped wearing that shit by the third one. Right. Well, <laughs> OK, th there's a little bit more to that, which is they paid a shitload of money for Robert Downey Jr. And so I think they were like, OK, if we are going to pay this much money to him, we want to see him on the screen. Well, and we like, don't, like we don't want something where it could be a stunt man like we want to actually yeah. see him on the screen so they do stuff where he steps out of the suit while he's working on something or he like has the the face shield go back it's just a mechanism of like he's not the star of this movie so we need to get all the star power from him we can so you just limit the amount of time he's in the suit right yeah so let's go out on this there's a guy on youtube named alan Sai. Uh, T-S-A-I, I believe, A-L-L-E-N. And he does these very, very short little short like clips. They're like 15, 20 seconds long. And they're just like really fun facts from movies. I might have mentioned this guy before, but uh, he has a whole series of them on Tony Stark that is very interesting because in every single after the first Iron Man movie, every time something happens in an Iron Man movie to him, oh right, in he, the he next movie, out a way to power up against it, he has taken that into account, and so like uh, his suit freezes in Avengers going into, or no, in the first one, suit freezes going into high altitude, and in the second movie, he's fixed that, and then like he gets elect like a bunch of electricity in one of them, and so then in the Avengers, he has created the capacitors to deal with that. So when Thor shoots him with lightning, he's able to shoot it back. Like their attention to detail. He gets busted his... around by Hulk and the Avengers. And so in Age of Ultron, he's, he's got the Hulk developed Buster the Hulk armor. Buster armor. Yeah. Like yeah. every time he learns from his mistakes. And that is a consistent thing in every single one of the. Well, in terms of technology, he learns from his mistakes. Yeah. In terms of man, he creates his own villains. Oh, a yeah. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of those two are like he has he learns from his mistakes. Yeah, in a in a like an analytical or no, not analytical, like a uh, uh, what's the word I want to use? Like a technical yes. sense. Yeah. But most of the mistakes that he makes that creates his villains are mistakes from like either like the first movie or before, or it's stuff that like his Age dad's of, responsible for again, some of it. Okay, but once again, Age of Ultron, like he's like, I want to put an armor around the world. And so he creates Ultron. Scarlet Witch manipulated him a little bit. She showed him his own fears and then he started playing off of that. Right. I mean, you're right, but that that's what puts the impetus on it. Well, what I would argue is that he the underlying anxiety and insecurity was already there and she basically was a catalyst that basically turned she, his she fears, showed him the future she turned his fears up to 11 and yeah. he began she, to behave she, she irrationally literally showed though. him what was going to happen and so he started to free, but he approached that the wrong way yeah which is weird that he would she would be able to do that since the time stone is not the stone that like augmented her powers since she got her powers not from the mind stone experiments it amplified her <laughs> it's powers, like a new right? wasn't that what, what well yeah augmented said? yeah amplified same difference okay we should probably cut off here mm, okay go ahead. all right take it easy <laughs> 
please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs, Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs, or email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. A podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions, too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void. 